Hello and welcome to LockPod. I'm Katie Ringsdor and I'm really excited to welcome you to a new podcast by the team here at Lockbox. In this series, we'll be quizzing some experts across a wide range of topics and industries. And today we're joined by mortgage expert Maria Harris. She runs her own mortgage technology company called Digital Cat Consultancy. Hi, Maria, and thank you very much for joining me on LockPod. Um, let's start off by talking about you. Do you want to just give us a bit of information about what you've been doing in your career? Oh, yeah, that would be lovely. It's really nice to talk to you. Um, so, yes, my name's Maria Harris. I um, have worked in a variety of management roles over the last 25 years, and mainly in contact centres and kind of customer facing stuff. Um, so, I've worked in the travel industry, I have worked in the utility industry, and then 15 years ago, I moved into financial services and found myself working in mortgages and completely fell in love with mortgages with intermediary distribution with working with customers to help them buy like their perfect house um, and I ended up staying there. Um, I've worked for a few banks and um, so some of the big ones I've worked for some building societies and some smaller ones and then I had the absolute pleasure of um, being part of the team who built Atom Bank who were the UK's first digital bank so the first bank that was app only and my role there was to design and build and launch the first digital mortgage in the UK, um, which was pretty crazy and probably the most exciting and interesting thing that I'll ever do in my life. It was a huge success, still is a huge success story, Atom was just the most amazing bank. Um, but on the back of doing that, lots of um, other companies in the industry were asking me, how did you do that? And how do we do that? And how do you get your customer journey so amazing? And how do you get all these fabulous kind of customer reviews? So I have set myself up as a consultant. I went self-employed 18 months ago, and now I help other people in the mortgage industry on their digital transformation journeys and redesigning the customer experience. So I get to do some very, very cool stuff there. And it's fair to say you are mortgage and digital obsessed because uh, I've worked <laughs> with you in the past and uh, your your knowledge is far beyond anything that I could even comprehend, to be fair. But um, Maria, I was wondering if I could kind of quiz you on first-time buyers at the moment because we're seeing that they're facing higher deposits. I think it's something like 27% at the moment, which is higher than usual. And I'm just wondering, what do you think the impact of that's going to be on the wider mortgage market? Yeah, so um, there's a few things that have happened on the back of, as you would expect, a global crisis and a pandemic that, that, you know, none of us ever could have predicted would come out this way with any amount of, you know, risk planning and forward looking and all of this kind of stuff. Like, this is such a unique set of circumstances. And there's a point in that journey um, from last year where it, banks have to be quite risk averse and they have to be they have to be able to survive any kind of crisis. Um, and it was on the back of the global financial crisis where a whole load of kind of new rules came in and a lot of strengthening of existing rules that, around how much money, which is capital, how much capital a bank has to hold to keep it safe so that we're never in a position again where, where we have to bail the banks out. So what happened in response to the crisis was that everybody has to go into crisis management mode. We have to make sure that we can survive any scenario that COVID is going to throw at us, whether that's lots of people being made unemployed, lots of people suffering really badly with the virus and not being able to work, um, house prices potentially crashing next year, which would be fairly normal on the back of high unemployment and lots of people not being able to pay their mortgages or their loans back. So banks have to go into crisis planning. And the first thing that you do in that scenario is 
come away from all of the things that are really capital intense. And that tends to be what are classed as higher risk mortgages. So that's anything like very high loan to value. So where customers don't have very much of a deposit um, or anything that's classed as a bit specialist or a bit higher risk. So things like guarantors or 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 self-employed and things like that, just where you hold more capital for those things because they're seen as inherently more risky. So that was a completely natural reaction for the banks and the lenders to take. Um, But now that we've kind of got a bit of a pattern on how COVID is going and we've had lots of government support and the furlough scheme, money for businesses, business interruption loans, lots of grants. Actually, things didn't work out quite as badly last year as they could have done. So we've actually seen a lot of those lenders coming back into higher LTV products. Um, and we're seeing quite a bizarre thing on, on house prices, which I'm sure we can talk about in a minute. But just on the higher LTV products, so anything that's 90% or above, so where a customer has 10% deposit or less, um, that was actually 9% of all of the products that were available last month compared to 7% of all products in November. So we're seeing lenders are slowly coming back into those higher LTV, slightly higher risk mortgages. So for customers who do have a small deposit, there are definitely still mortgages out there. You just have to know where to look or find a really, really good mortgage broker who knows which of those lenders are still lending. That's really interesting and really positive to hear that it's starting to turn around, actually. And, you know, just thinking about young people and how they can overcome the affordability problem, because I think I saw something, um, one of the banks was stopping people from getting help from parents to build their deposits. And I suppose that goes back to what you were saying around that being a much riskier investment for lenders. Yeah, so I mean, some of the the lenders who've had to move away from certain things, I mean, like I say, some of that's just a natural response to managing a crisis and having to kind of pull back your risk. Um, But there's lots of lenders still out there that are doing guarantors, doing shared ownership mortgages, which is a really good way for first-time buyers to get on the ladder. If you're in an area where house prices tend to be a bit higher, you see a lot of that with um, key workers, with and people who are in things like the police and, and fire, that kind of thing, where, you know, really, really good professions, really good career trajectories, but the house prices, school teachers, like the house prices where they live just make it hard. Um, and things like help to buy. So there's still lenders doing all of those things. Um, but one of the one of the unintended um, or kind of surprising elements of COVID has actually been for people who are still in regular and fairly secure employment or who've been furloughed but their company is going to make it out of this um, when the market comes back and starts picking up is that actually we've seen lots of people saving huge amounts of money because um, we can't go out anywhere we can't spend money on the things we'd normally be doing you know good nights out and weekends away or even traveling to and from work and you know spending lots of money on on, on kind of take and you know grab and go lunches that kind of stuff so we're actually seeing lots of first-time buyers are seeing this as a really good opportunity to save while they can um which is you know that's kind of like one of the nicer things that's happened because of covid which is definitely a help um but there are there's a lot of things that people can do um when they're planning to start looking for a house and the best bit of advice i ever heard which was from a mortgage broker was that you need to start your planning at least 12 months before you even start looking for a house um there's you know start at least a year before 
save the biggest deposit that you possibly can because the bigger deposit that you have, the better the mortgage rate you are eligible for. Um, but also because there's a whole load of other costs that first-time buyers don't normally know they're going to have to pay. So at the moment, we've got a stamp duty holiday, which is great because that's one of the things that normally catches <clears throat> people by surprise. But there's a whole load of other costs as well around things like getting the property valued, paying for um, searches, paying for the legal process, the conveyancing, which is the, the bit that happens to make the house officially yours and to be registered at land registry. So yeah, start at least 12 months out and save the biggest deposit you can, but also save like a little pot of cash for all of the other things that you're not expecting. Um, and then there's a huge amount of stuff that people can do around um, their credit file and their credit history. And yeah, we should probably talk about that and how you do those things. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And that's something that we, we really focus on a lot here at Lockbox um, and certainly around financial inclusion as well. So actually, perhaps let's talk about that. What should people be doing right now with, you know, preparing themselves for the future and, you know, coming out of this crisis and potentially investing in, in property? With regards to credit scores, what's the impact on the, the mortgage application process? So most lenders will use your credit score and your credit history, but also your profile as an indication of how likely you are to be a good repair of your mortgage. And that's what they're looking for. They're looking to see, have you had any credit products in the past, whether that be credit cards, car finance, whether you pay your utility bills on time, all of those kind of things. So they're looking for a track record that you've done that. So there's a few things that are definitely good advice for first-time buyers. So the first thing is to get a copy of your credit file. Um, There's lots of agencies out there that will do one for free or where you can sign up and subscribe and check it every month, which is kind of good practice anyway for like checking that nobody's stolen your identity or taken out products in your name or committed fraud and that kind of stuff. So it's good housekeeping. But when you do get your credit file, it's really important to actually go through it and check that all of the information that is on there is right. And if it's not, you can apply to that credit bureau to have it corrected. So that's a good starting point just to go through and do a bit of housekeeping and check that things like your address history and all of the dates of the houses that you've lived in for the last three years is right. And a lender would normally check three years worth of address history. Sometimes they'll do six, but three is the norm. Um, Check things like your credit accounts and credit cards, store cards, all of that. Make sure that they're all correct and that any really old ones that you haven't used for a long time. So if you took out a credit store card because you got a special offer where you got a discount if you opened an account, but you've paid it off and not used it since, actually write to them or email them and get that account closed down. Because if you've got lots of credit open, even if you're not using it, that can impact on your credit score because a lender doesn't want you to have really good credit today take out your mortgage and then go and use all of these cards or loans that you've got sitting in the background and then rack up a whole load of debt on top of your mortgage and um, because that's how you can end up in trouble really quickly. Um, check that you're registered on the electoral roll and that any um, any things that you are paying for, so whether that's your utilities, mobile phone, anything like that, make sure that they're all listed at your current address and that they're being captured because that's good evidence that you're paying things on time. And then there's a few things that lenders um, lenders don't like to see on credit reports. So 
anything that would look make make it look like you needed more help managing your money. So things like we're not we see them as much now, but things like payday loans are very short term lending where you're borrowing money to get you to the end of the month because that makes it look like if you're going to be short at the end of every month you've not got enough disposable income. Um, using things like your credit card to take cash out of a cash machine or using your credit card for to get you by where you can't get through to the end of every month and things like spending a lot of money on gambling accounts, that kind of thing. Anything that would just raise a flag to a lender to go, this person might not be great at managing their money or they might not have enough money to get them to the end of every month. So, yeah, start 12 months out and fix as many of those things as you possibly can so that your finances look really healthy and that you've got, you'll see those things impact on your credit score quite quickly. And the cleaner you can make that credit file, the more attractive you are to lots and lots of lenders. Yeah, that's really interesting because it's not necessarily just about the score looking healthy, is it? It's about the entire journey and showing that you are a responsible borrower and you're good with money. So, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, earlier, you mentioned house prices. Um, how's it looking at the moment? What's been the impact on the on house prices? So, well, last year was absolutely bizarre. And there's no other way for me to describe that because in any other scenario where we had global a global event or even a, a kind of macroeconomic event what would normally happen is that people wouldn't move you'd batten down your hatches and you'd stay in your house and you'd maybe extend or you know update your kitchen and bathroom and that kind of stuff and house prices would naturally fall what we saw last year was because we were in lockdown and people were working more from home but also we had such an amazing year with weather and things last year. And the, the only thing that you could do was go out and have walks and, 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 you know, go to local parks and that kind of stuff. We saw this really huge movement of people looking for houses that had workspace and houses that either had their own outdoor space or were near to outdoor areas. So, you know, kind of green areas nearby, parks, beaches, that kind of stuff. So because of that, we actually saw house prices go up, which you would never normally predict in, in this kind of event. Um, but there was a lot of people who moved for lots of different reasons, um, let's say around working from home or just being near green space or having outdoor space. But that seems to have slowed down. Um, we normally see a slowdown at Christmas anyway, because it's not a great time for people to move. Um, but in January, we saw house prices fall for the first time since I think last April. Um, and it wasn't much of a fall, it was tiny, like 0.3%. But that might mean that house prices have stabilised. Um, and I think the average house price that we saw at the turn of the year was around about 252000 so we think that that might plateau for a little while. But I was saying earlier, one of the one of the things that we expect on the back of, of the ongoing pandemic and as some of the government support starts tailing off is that you would expect that unemployment levels are going to go up. And unemployment is probably the biggest factor for house prices and for banks' risk appetites. Because high unemployment is the thing that has the biggest impact on people being able to pay their mortgage. Because if you can't work and you can't find a new job and you've got no other income and you you know you you kind of your savings will run out eventually, you will see more people um, in arrears, 
you'll see less people buying and moving because if you're unemployed, you can't get a new mortgage or um, it's actually a lot harder. Um, and that generally leads to house prices falling. So there is an expectation that probably by the middle of this year, we'll actually start to see house prices fall, which is great news for first-time buyers and really good news for affordability, but not great news for people who already live in a house where they've got a mortgage because that has a different impact and that creates higher risk for banks when all of their existing borrowers' house values are going down and we'll see more people struggling to pay. That's a really interesting point, actually. And just on that, so people that are perhaps moving um, or remortgaging, what's the impact going to be? Because surely that's going to give them pretty bad rates, right? Um, well, so again, rates and uh, rates are strange at the moment. So normally you would expect the way that banks borrow money and the way that banks kind of finance mortgages is through predominantly through savings. Um, but also through money that they borrow from open markets. So banks borrow from other banks to fund mortgages. Um, so obviously savings at the moment, given that we're on the most historically low Bank of England base rate we've ever seen, banks can get savings in for pretty much nothing. Um, you've seen savings rates and current account rates that are paying interest of 0.1 or even 0.05%. So for banks, that means they've actually got access to lots of money that's not costing them very much. And that means lending that money out in mortgages doesn't cost them as much as it would normally. So unless we see Bank of England rates start to creep back up, or we see the money markets where the banks are lending to institu- like institutional banks, lending to retail banks. Unless we see the cost of that money go up, but, um, mortgage rates are still staying historically low. So for anybody who is about to go onto their standard variable rate and is in a position to remortgage, they're probably going to get the best rate that they could have done in a really long time. That's really interesting, actually. And just on that cost of funds piece that you were talking about there, I kind of want to move on to the internal piece around how lenders, banks and businesses are investing in digital transformation, because I know this is an area that you're really, really passionate about. And and obviously, with starting Atom with the digital mortgages proposition there, especially, you know, it was a real disruptor to the market. With the lower cost of funds, do you think we're going to see a greater investment in digital transformation with lenders? Um, so this is uh, yeah, this is really interesting, and you're right. It's something I'm really passionate about. So COVID has forced um, banks, lenders, and the entire mortgage industry to completely change how it works. And if you'd asked that industry 12 months ago, could they imagine a scenario where we speak to our customers over Zoom and Teams and other kind of digital platforms? where we don't have bits of paper flying around for things like identity and proof of address and bank statements and pay slips and all of the other documents that we would normally use to do a mortgage. And that we'd have all of our mortgage processing teams and underwriters and valuers and conveyances and all of these people working predominantly from home. The mortgage industry never could have imagined that that would be it would be feasible or that it would ever work. And because of COVID, they've been forced to move to that really quickly. And they did. They responded so quickly. So at the beginning of the pandemic, the house and market closed for a little while. And, we, you know, people weren't allowed to move house. But they opened that up quite quickly. And the industry responded in a phenomenal way to get the industry moving again. And people have been moving house. It, the process is taking longer 
Um, there are some things that are still very, very manual. Um, and when you've got valuations and somebody physically still needs to go and value a house, that, you know, we've obviously got social distancing and extra support and care around that to make sure it's done safely. And then there's a lot of what I talked about before about the kind of legal process and searches. There are a lot of those that actually have to be still done manually just because the data is not available in an electronic format. So that means that the time it takes somebody to move has probably been a bit longer than it would have done in normal circumstances. But the housing market has stayed open and people have still been allowed to move. And let's say we've seen some really big increases in people moving house because of COVID, but also because of the stamp duty holiday and wanting to move before the end of March this year to, to not pay that stamp duty. We've not really done digital transformation it's like we've moved from paper to electronic we've moved from face to face to platforms but it's just kind of like it's an illusion of transformation it's not really transformation we've done what we need to do to keep the market moving but that's not the same as digital whereas banks like atom and starling and monzo that are truly digital first and where the experience is actually designed around the customer journey and the customer's interaction and the customer's experience. We haven't done that in mortgages yet. And there's a huge way to go for that to happen. There's lots of stuff happening in the industry, um, quite a bit of which is being led by various government and industry departments. Um, things like moving to a digital identity framework, um, getting a lot of the data, which is currently manual and not available on a digital platform, moving that through the land registry, have a big digital street project going on. Um, there's a huge amount of work to do and it is starting to happen. But I think rather than it being cost of funds that it's going to drive that, it's actually going to be um, the, the government and industry working groups and the fact that the banks have kind of realised that this change is actually possible and that they can deliver it a lot faster than they ever thought that they could. Yeah, and, and you know, just thinking back to when you did all that work around digital mortgages and, you know, the, I think the, the end-to-end process uh, that would normally take weeks, months for somebody to, you know, find a house, apply for a mortgage, get the keys and move in, you reduced that time significantly with, you know, the work that you were doing at Atom specifically. What do you predict is the next big shift change in the mortgage, mortgage industry? Because we've seen slicker process, digital processes. I think we've seen blockchain playing a bit of a part now, but what's next? Um, okay, so there are um, there are probably I'm, I'm going to say three things that I think will happen this year, and it's always dangerous to predict. Just like Maria with a crystal ball, and your crystal ball is very rarely right. Um, so I'll caveat this by saying you know crystal balls don't work. Um, one of the government industry groups that is making amazing progress this year is the Digital Identity Working Group, and they're working with the Department of Culture and Media with HM Land Registry. Um, and with the Department of Housing, and then a whole, a whole load of industry people to create um, a trust framework and a data standard around digital identity in the mortgage process. So at the moment, what happens is, as a customer, if I go to an estate agent, find a house, and then go through the mortgage process, I usually have to provide my identity to be checked and verified at least five times during the process, which is customers just, it's just nonsensical. You're kind of banging your head off the table going, why do I have to do this again? And the digital identity framework will create the trust in the industry where the customer can do their identity once, 
And that identity is used right the way through. So they only ever have to do it once. And everybody else in the process knows that that digital identity is authenticated to government standard and that the customer is safe and that that identity is safe and we can use it all the way through. So that's the first thing. And if we get that right, that then gives us a blueprint to be able to do the same process with lots of different things like fraud checking and anti-money laundering and all of the other things that a bank and a, a, a conveyancer have to do to make sure that you're safe all of the way through the process. So that's number one. Number two is there's a group called the Home Buyers and Sellers Group, again, working with the Department of Housing and Land Registry. And at the moment when you buy a house, even though you can have this amazing experience with your estate agent, with your mortgage broker, and then with somebody like Atom Bank, who can actually get you a mortgage offer in 14 seconds, which is phenomenal. The back end of the process, once you've got your mortgage offer, is still pretty antiquated. And this is the kind of legal conveyancing search data, all of this kind of part of it. So the home buying and selling group are working on that data set to pull it right to the very front of the process. And in an ideal world, if you design this perfect customer journey, you would want somebody who's going to view a property before they even set foot through that front door to have all of the data that they need to know to make a really informed decision about whether or not that house is right for them, but also to be able to share that data with the lender and the conveyancer and make sure that there's nothing that's going to stop them completing on that house. Because today, maybe one in, I think it's about one in four transactions fall through because the customer can't complete. And it's usually because something comes out at the back end of the process around the property itself or from the search information that then means that the customer can't complete their chain. And that's really heartbreaking for a customer when you've committed financially and emotionally and quite often a chain will collapse because one person has to fall out and then there's just this kind of big pebble impact where it ripples right the way through. So the home buying and selling group want to fix that by pulling all of the data right to the very front of the process. And there's a lot of dependencies on that, not least with local government and local searches and property tech companies. And it's a lot of things to tie up, but we've started the process and I'm really confident that we're going to get there. There's a huge amount of willing because we know it's the right thing to do. So that's the second thing that I think we'll start seeing an impact this year. And then the third one is um, one of my favourites, which you've just mentioned, which is blockchain. Um, we've seen some really lovely proof of concepts um, using distributed ledgers uh, over the last couple of years in financial services, but also in other industries like um, in food manufacture, in logistics, you know, moving things from one place to another around the world, um, in asset management, things like fine art and wine collections and that kind of stuff. And that technology just lends itself really, really nicely to the mortgage process. So one of the companies that I sit on the board, the advisory board of, did a proof of concept last year um, with um, some government departments and a lot of industry players. They've recently closed a funding round and put their advisory board together and we'll start seeing some live distributed ledger technology in the industry for the first time this year, which is just so, so, so exciting. That's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I just want to go back actually to your second point from the home buyers and sellers group work around data first. It's something I've been looking into actually, because 
if we actually make, manage to make that evolution, which will make the whole process so much easier, and as you say, much more achievable and less heartbreaking for many people, do you think we'll end up seeing a lot of, um, or do you think we'll end up seeing more API connectivity then? So the likes of Zoopla, let's say, when you've got that data first, do you, can you see perhaps relationships building where if I go onto Zoopla now, I've already got my information on what kind of mortgage I can get, what's going to be approved for me, and those houses will then be available to me to see and then f- start that process off much quicker? Yeah, the APIs are absolutely the key to that. Um, and whether it's APIs or distributed ledger, the, the, the whole thing is actually around using data to drive the customer experience and giving the customer control of the data right at the outset. Because this, all of this data, so the data about my house and you know what energy efficiency I've got and what kind of central heating I've got and all of the things that somebody who might want to buy my house needs to know. It's my data, but right now I don't have a way to access it or share it. And the way to do that is either through APIs or actually just through much better industry collaboration And as an industry, um, financial services in general, but mortgages really specifically, collaboration is not something we've been great at. We've got lots of silos within the end-to-end process, and it's never really been designed from a a true customer-led, data-driven, like working out the end-to-end process and joining it all up really nicely. So APIs are absolutely key to that or whatever technology works best for us to do that. But actually, it's a bit of a cultural and a mindset shift for everybody in the industry to start designing collectively, collaboratively, but with the customer at the heart of the design rather than designing for what makes us operationally efficient or, you know, being able to manage our finances better or be able to manage our own risk. We need to manage it holistically. I love it, Maria. Thank you. You can make something like mortgages, which can be quite scary and also quite boring for many people, very exciting. So I'm actually really excited about the mortgage market in the next few years. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been great speaking to you. Absolute pleasure. Really lovely to speak to you too.